Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I'm talking to Philip Roscoe from St. Andrews University about his new book, A Richer Life, How Economics Can Change the Way We Think and Feel, which is published by Penguin in 2015. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm going to be talking to Philip Roscoe from St. Andrews University about his book, A Richer Life, How Economics Can Change the Way We Think and Feel. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, it, it, it's great to have you on, actually, and, and this um, is, is a really fascinating book that contributes to a, a growing, um, I guess, kind of disquiet about uh, economics, and it does it in a variety of ways, um, which we're going to talk through. I wonder if we could kick off uh, with you giving some um, background about your own career and, and, and the, the way the book came about, and particularly, actually, I'm interested in the book as a kind of uh, mass market popular paperback full of uh, interesting academic ideas. Yeah, well, I'm glad you read it like that. That's exactly what it is. And I wonder, um, seeing some of the other books that are reviewed in this this podcast, quite how that, how that fits in. But um, uh, one of the one of the many motivations for for writing the book, uh, perhaps not the main one, but certainly, I work in the area of uh, market studies and and social studies of finance, economic sociology more broadly. Um, there's lots and lots of interesting work being done by excellent scholars, and it hasn't had that kind of visibility ability that uh, you get you know if you walk into the bookshop the, the bookshelves are absolutely laden down by um, books economics can explain this and economics can explain that and so forth and because of some uh, some bits of luck along the way I had an opportunity to to put something from our from our position back into the market and I took it uh, so this, this is how the, the, the book came about in, in those very simple terms yeah and it, it's it's funny you mentioned the other the other books in the podcast series because I, I think this actually sits along um, things like the valuation studies in the life sciences book, which which you actually contribute to, but I do. also people like Will Davis's work, mm-hmm, um, definitely, and kind of questions of, of neoliberalism and stuff like this. I, I wonder then, actually, if you could kind of spell out the um, the, the core argument in the book, particularly the two things that are going on around kind of um, both buying and selling things in, in, in monetary terms being really important to contemporary society, but also the kind of the science of economics that goes alongside that. So, the, okay, there are, there are two, if possibly three sort of intertwined strands to the argument. Um, and the first is to do with the, the um, role that economics has in our polity at the moment. You've got to remember, so I started working on this book in about 2011, um, and at that time we were really in the thick of austerity. Greece was collapsing. Um, the, you know, the evidence for uh, austerity, as far as I could tell, was provided by two Harvard academics who it later turned out their spreadsheet had been knocked up by a student intern who'd got it wrong. Yeah. You know, and this, this, this disconnect between the the 
normative force, political force that economics broadly understood can claim um, and the actual sort of sophistication and care and attention of the models that are underlying it really, really very striking. So I think we can you know, we can be uncomfortable that the the, the way that um, economic um, reasoning has been uh, adopted as a kind of policy measure. And that is underlain by uh, ideas about economics as a science, economics as, um, as uh, objective and so forth, which I think come directly from Milton Friedman and Milton Friedman's reading of, of, of Popper, if you like. Um, and, I'm aware that, that this is a kind of caricature of what goes on in university economics departments. Yes, for sure. You know, we have lots of interesting people. But I don't think it's a caricature of what goes on among PPE graduates who are, you know, running the country or, or people like the civil servants that you yourself have researched in the in the Treasury. The, uh, the, the empirical research that I've seen shows people absolutely bound up in and compelled by um, a really quite rudimentary understanding Understandings of economic behaviour and, and economic reasoning, and that seems to me to have tremendously, you know, damaging political consequences. So those are that's that, that sort of one strand, if you like, and the other is as the. As I'm, I'm, I'm sure you know, I began my academic career long ago as a, as a theologian, as an undergraduate and, and a master's student. And although lots of that has uh, washed away, some bits have stuck. And among that is a, is a profound sense of, of how interpersonal relationships should be and what it is to live a, a flourishing life, which is, you know, to do with um, uh, sort of gift and service and stewardship and all these kind of um, traditional Anglican ideals, I suppose you might call them. Um, and it seems to me that, that economic rationality is absolutely um, – um, profoundly alienating. You know, it stands exactly against the development of that, that kind of good life and those kind of interpersonal relationships. So where you see economic uh, rationality being uh, inculcated in our interpersonal relationships, and, and to get there, you have to go through the, the, um, the, the ideas about market devices and actor networks and agencement and all the kind of things that we take for red quite often in sociological studies of markets, then you see a, a problem that's, that's you know, personal and philosophical as well as as well as political. So those are the twin and, and perhaps irre irreconcilable aims with which I set out. And you'll have to tell me how well I did. It, it, it's quite interesting, actually, because that um, dual aim, I think, is exemplified really well in the in the first chapter or the you know the, the first kind of substantive chapter where. You draw a kind of an arc uh, of, a, of a sort of a history of economics from mm. um, it, it's it's kind of beginnings, you know, the things that most people are familiar with, with things like Smith, um, you know, um, theory of moral sentiments, um, these kinds of texts, wealth of nations. But you you bring us to a point where we understand how what we might think of as kind of popular economics literature, uh, the free economics people, Tim Hartford, you know, these kinds of of more popular. Uh, popularizers of economic thinking um give us a what you call a kind of a almost a theory of the meaning of life itself through economics um and, and i wonder if, if you could say a bit about that development because i think it answers those two those two aims quite well yeah certainly well as you say the, the you can go back to to smith um and and the enlightenment to the under 
There is some dispute in academic circles among among whether Smith's view is a providential one or not. But as a as a bit of a, a, a dilettante, um, it seems to me that it is. That's the way the the balance of of um, the balance of evidence seems to lie that you know Smith has taken taken previous arguments about the organisation of the world and simply transferred them into a secularised framework, and from there I don't think that economics ever loses that sort of sense of the um, of, of, of somehow representing um, uh, uh, an arrangement of the world that is that is elsewhere inspired. So Foucault, for example, in, in Birth Biopolitics, talks about um, competition as a sublime object and, and um, the neoliberals as endlessly trying to progress towards that. And you have these same kind of theological overtones. So you can trace a, trace a, a, a little grand narrative, if you like, from those, those early beginnings through um, people like the... the um, you know, the marginalist revolutionaries who updated economics with uh, heat physics, which is then the, the, the science of the day, through to uh, Lionel Robbins um, explaining that economics is an engine of discovery for telling us, you know, uh, I forget the exact quote, but whatever our, you know, examining our preferences as we choose between scarce means. Um, Dennis Robertson saying, what does the economist economize? Of course, he economizes on love. He said, well, these are extraordinary claims for a, a, a discipline to be to be making, and they're you know they are they are um, philosophically overflowing. You know, Robertson's claim that that if we don't ration out civic virtue, it will somehow run out, um, and we'll all be worse people. Is an extraordinarily kind of complex claim crammed into a few little assumptions, um, and then. Who's next? Gary Becker, of course, expanding um, this theory of the rational analysis of preferences to every single um, uh, walk of life, you know, whether um, how we decide to get married or whether or not we're prejudiced or how we hire people or whatever it may be can all be analysed in this way. And then it seems to, you know, just be tweaked and dumbed down a little bit more and you get free economics who will then tell you that, you know, economics can solve everything. Tim Harford, the economic, the economist explains how economics is the uh, is is uh, is is a, the discipline capable of of answering you know any questions we would like until the point where it really does provide a a theory of life it gives an account of 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 every decision we might ever want to take that wouldn't be so much of a problem if that's all it did but it also um wraps into these these theories a normative account so not only does it seek to explain how we take every decision that we ever take, but it also gives us a, an account of how we should do that. Uh, and it does so in a series of neat little footsteps that are, that are almost unnoticeable until you end at a place that seems to me to be uh, uncomfortable and problematic. Yeah, and, and, and one of the consequences of this is the idea that it's not just a, a description of the world, but it has profound, um, what we might think of as kind of performative, Absolutely, absolutely. One of the things you talk through is uh, is Tim Mitchell's work, um, which, which I found quite quite interesting, and, and also JL, JL Austin together. And I, I wonder if you could tell tell me a little bit about the idea that economics kind of makes the world, it makes facts, it, it, it does things in the world. Well, um, we have the the the, the marvellous study of the um, making facts in the favela by Tim Mitchell, don't we? Of the um, 
what's the the, the, the the backstory to this is the neoliberal insistence on the primacy of property rights and the idea that um, that um, if you if you give people um, um, property rights over their 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 houses in 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 the well, houses is too grand a term their dwellings shacks in the slums in in developing world countries they will suddenly be able to to you know appeal to the rule of law and go off and get jobs and and all the rest of it and the story he tells is of this being empirically demonstrated by um, a PhD student called Erica Field who then went on to be economics faculty at Harvard it was very very successful on the basis of this of this work. And so it comes to be, you know, from the hypothesis that um, if you if you grant property rights, then these favelas suddenly become law-abiding districts where children no longer have to go to work because adults don't have to stay at school to stay at home to um, to, to guard their houses, and the children can go to school. It all, it all by a sort of back-to-front process of logic, it all seems to become true. And and Mitchell's analysis is slightly different. It's it is that the property rights were gifted at the, by the um, by the bureaucrats very sensibly in the areas they felt were safest in a city that was becoming gentrified. So what they have identified is a correlation, of course, but not a cause. And this goes right back to to Milton Friedman's idea of um, of uh, positive economics and and the usefulness of inaccurate assumptions so long as they lead to falsifiable predictions. But, you know, I work in a school of management and we've seen over the last, I don't know, um, 50 years or so, the growth of a, of a science of management where all of these, these, these initial ideas about, you know, how we, we might hypothesize that businessmen act in order to understand or model what it is that they do have slowly been imbricated into business school theory um, and understandings of cost-benefit analysis as the appropriate way to do um, take uh, investment decisions and so forth, and have been exactly, as you say, performed, brought, brought real, made, um, made happen in the world, and you end up with a science of business administration that uh, that is a completely self-contained sort of you know logically consistent science built upon seemingly well i don't know nothing at all perhaps and it, it's interesting that that kind of um i guess forward march of, of business administration or, or business science depends on having a, a very particular view about how people operate about the kind of the idea of economic man and uh-huh. um, in the fourth chapter you, you draw from a really wide range of examples from kind of Norwegian fishing, 18th century prison planning, uh, contemporary university student behavior to tell the story about the creation of economic man. And I wonder if you could kind of talk me through that story. I think some of this will chime very nicely with Will Davis's work on, on competition as well. Um, but there's, uh, there's, a considerable amount of literature of, of um, uh, isolated empirical um, uh, instance of, uh, where decisions have been made by administrators, say, on the basis that people will act in a particular rational way. Um, and then once these these decisions have been played out in policy, you know, they've been made into frameworks of incentive or uh, reward or metrics, whatever it may be, um, then it does really change the way that, that people people act, people behave. So, for example, you know, the whole discourse of um, charging university, making universities charge 
fees to students, of making the students consumers, of making universities compete, whatever we're competing for in a market beholden to students' satisfaction and so forth, has a complicated apparatus behind it of the uh, the ref, which you may have heard of, Dave, once or twice in your just a little <laughs> in your in your academic life, and you know that uh, and the associated uh, metrics and measurements that um, we have there. I don't know what the case is in sociology, but certainly in, in business schools, there is a list of journals that show this ABS ranking. Um, and the extraordinary thing about, about, about this is that we all acknowledge that the ABS ranking is, you know, a fiction of some kind. Uh, the ref panel were very clear that they didn't use it. They read the submissions. Um, and yet it's such a useful institutional shorthand that, that, it, that it's still employed all the time. And, and little decisions on the list of what goes up and what go, what goes down can can make and break careers. I think so. You see, the whole endeavour of what it is to be a student, what it is to be an academic, um, you know, to be a student, it is now to to carefully manage the potential return on your investment, which we encounter very much in students wanting to take low risk course students being very worried about how they can get a distinction and 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 so forth um, academics wanting to play safe, wanting to engage in the kind of of technically technically sort of technical wizardry but um, perhaps you know intellectually low risk scholarship that they think can be got it safely into those journals that are regarded as as high ranking and it's not to say that it's you know it, it it's not good research but perhaps at times it's not exciting research and it's a very different idea of 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 scholarship and studentship from what you might have found in a university even i think um 25 years ago when i was an undergraduate i think the the rules were were very very different this um vision of, of kind of sort of rational utility maximizing um, actor whether in the university or, or in a variety of other settings has, has got um, a, a range of devices uh, a range of kind of uh, tools um, associated uh, w- with him and and in, in chapter five you talk you talk through the idea of the credit score about um, how you know the kind of economic man, as he's made through particular ideological positions, also has this moment of um, kind of technical devices that assist uh, with this, you know, the, the kind of um, the example of moving from personal relationships between individuals and their bank managers or, or whatever to statistical forms of risk management. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely crucial. I think that's the 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 most important step in the whole argument um, is that. These, you know, within these ideological wrappers, we depend upon um, uh, constellations of devices to help us navigate the world every day. I mean, if one is supposed to be a a consumer, just just back to universities for a moment, if one's supposed to be a consumer uh, and a potential student, then there's no way that you can decide which university uh, will offer you best return on your investment and value for money without this, this infrastructure of lists and metrics and so forth. So it goes right the way down. Um, and in the case of housing, yeah, cre- the credit score is a, is, a, is a very, very nice example. The story comes from Martha Poon's work on um, the, the birth of the, the FICO lending score. 
which we don't know much about in Britain, but I think in the United States, one more or less lives or dies by it in terms of your, your credit applications and trying to get a flat and, and so forth. Um, uh, 20, 30 years ago, let's say, you know, uh, in our in our parents' day, my father always used to say, oh, the bank manager knows what you're good for, you know, and there's a kind of sense that the bank manager's peacock in the in the local community goes to the cocktail parties and you know is a person of some some dignity it's always a him the bank manager um and he decides what uh, what to lend and what not to lend and uh, i i don't want to be seen to be no- nostalgically naively always harking back to how things used to be as as better or or somehow pristine in a kind of polanius fashion I don't think that's the case at all. I mean, you know, you can see obviously the the, the how how difficult and uh, toxic this relationship must at times have been. But nonetheless, this is how bank managers made decisions. They got to know people. They they uh, made use of a variety of of. Um, cues such as, you know, kind of flashy dress or extravagant spouses or a, a disposition to the bottle or whatever it may be to decide whether to lend or not. And they were ultimately extremely conservative. One of the reasons for that conservatism is that it's a binary choice, risk. It's either a good risk or a bad risk. Now, Poon tells us the story of how two enterprising operations researchers after the war began to discover uh, and develop statistical means of of um, graduating risk. And there's a long story about, you know, how they began in 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 uh, department stores in the Midwest, helping people, um, helping stores get slightly better returns on their hyper their their higher purchase of furniture uh, and then they become involved in credit card issuance and you know as they get more powerful they they subpoena the um, the, the existing credit bureaus into sharing information and so forth until you get to the point where we are now um, that every economically active citizen in the in the American in the United States has the FICO score and this FICO store uh, is an indicator of how um, creditworthy you are, and it becomes possible for for lenders to uh, issue um, uh, credit in a much more granular fashion on a nuanced kind of uh, economically driven risk and return. So again. Uh, Three generations or three decades ago, sorry, the traditional banking economics was that you didn't offer high risk, high return loans because the potential loss of the principal was 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 um, too damaging. But now you can play with your your algorithms until you decide that, well, these people are, um, are good loans and they can be issued with cheap loans and these people are less credit worthy, so we make them pay more. It completely turns that relationship on its head. And of course, where it really matters is at some point in the in the 1990s, forgive me, I'm I don't recall right now. Um, the um, the U.S. Um, mortgage bureau, Freddie Mae and Fannie Mac, decreed that 660, I believe, a FICO score of 660 was the point at which Prime began. And everything below that was, of course, subprime. subprime indeed. And therefore, the subprime is no longer a, um, a category where it is not safe to lend your money. It is a category where one can lend your money at risk for much more higher rates of return, higher, higher rates of interest. 
and you but you step back out of this and you go, this is crazy. You know, what does um, uh, someone who's a really bad credit risk um, hasn't got a job, hasn't got an income, whatever it may be, hasn't got any security? What do they not need? It's a, a loan they can't afford at a very high interest rate. So, so at some point, we see that that you know common sense takes flight and we become tangled up in these these um, these models that are based on economic conceptions of risk and return and and payoff and look what happened and but they also have sort of um deeper consequences in in, in how we think of um individuals um and perhaps how we think of humanity itself both in terms of particular kinds of equivalences for example the equivalence between say a kidney and an education but also through uh techniques such as the value of a statistical life um, and how we might think of, of healthcare costs and what is, um, I guess, a kind of a value for money intervention into, uh-huh. uh, into human life. So chapters um, six and seven co- cover those two topics. Uh, I wonder if you could deal with them together, the idea of this uh, value of life, but also the idea of equivalence. Yes, of course. Um, the... Well, they they are all about equivalences, aren't they? Um, and, and the various ways in which you made. So, just as a bit of a bit of background, this idea of um, of a value of statistical life represents the inferred value to which we we attach risk or which we attach to risk. So, from people's um, willingness to attach uh, to take risky work, from their willingness to pay for consumer safety, um, we could determine how, how much um, uh, each individual would value an additional year of life or some 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 such we get a, again a very nuanced um, statistical calculation of, of what life is effectively worth the 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 one hiccup in this of course is that in america it's worth several times as it, as much as it is in the uk um the other hiccup of course is that those people who are most likely to be taking dangerous jobs i would say are those people who can least afford to not take them so they, that that represents a kind of double jeopardy in that they um if if individuals are are um forced by forced by the market is a little bit strong they end up through circumstances which are you know often complicated and unfortunate um working in places like construction sites and and um facing you know danger or, or on fishing boats whatever it may be facing danger on a daily basis they don't earn an especially large amount of money because of the circumstances that have got them there in the first place. So if we then begin to infer the value that they place on their lives for policy prescriptions about how much we should spend on, you know, um, road safety or whatever it may be, um, or how much payoff should be set at, or machinery innovations, all those kind of things, then it seems to me there's a there's a double jeopardy being being played out on these these unfortunate people, um, and and. There are all kinds of measures like this. There is the the notorious um, quality adjusted life year, um, which is used in uh, economic value valuations of care, um, and again that presupposes equivalences between a life here and a life there and a treatment here and a treatment there um, or equivalences that are made on the basis of this this fundamental neoliberal idea about ourselves as somehow productive machinery where we can invest in in 
one part of you know invest in our intellectual capital by drawing on our physical capital and so forth that make it possible for for conversations to be had about for example a kidney sale if it were legal um being swapped for a, a university education and i think it's one of these these difficult arguments where you can see at any point in this any sort of micro level step in the argument you can say okay i'm you know i see the sense in that i see the the reasons behind this but then collectively you arrive at a situation where it's com- considered completely legitimate for um you know someone who who wants an ipad well it Perhaps this is an absurd example to the, because there was media outrage, I, I recall. But it could easily be considered an equivalent for um, uh, a person to sell a part of their anatomy or sexual services or whatever to, to go to college. And while there may be good micro-level um, uh, grounds for justifying that – I think we have to step back and go, you know, is that the kind of society that we really want or is is education a public good that we should be providing in different sorts of ways? So this is this is again one of the things that troubles me is the 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 cumulative effect of, of these many valuations and equivalences that are made often with, with good reason. And how can we sort of carry this over into a, a critique of, of the most um, personal uh, form of relationship, which is to do with um, how we choose partners, or you know, how we date, how we um, you know kind of end up in uh, particular romantic situations. Um, well, I, I presume you're referring to the the work that we've done on uh, online dating with my colleague Shona Chillis here in St Andrews. Um, I I think online dating is is a perfect example of one of these uh, situations where people become um, um, embedded in in social material technological networks that configure the 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 outcomes and the choices in a very particular way. So um, you know when you go on the you go on the dating site, you don't do all the choosing by yourself. You choose quite often. A lot of it is done for you by the algorithm. Even if it isn't, you know your choices are guided and directed, constructed in particular ways. And the rhetoric that that surrounds these sites is often. Um, you know, if you listen to Classic FM while you're doing the washing up, as I'm sure you do, you'll hear the. Uh, it's, a, it's a slightly. We, we, we demo- have very different uh, tastes in music. <laughs> it's a slightly older demographic than uh, the new Doctor O'Brien, the uh, Classic FM, and they advertise a, a, a dating site with, along the lines of get someone who's right for you just now to share what you you know share the things you like doing and enjoy what you like doing, and the, the emphasis is it's it's really like a you know going to buy a new jacket and you you get it. And it fit perfectly and um if you don't like it you know take it take it back now again i'm i'm being very careful here not to be nostalgic for the old days of the village or anything like that but we do know from those who research relationships in psychology that that good relationships flourishing relationships are built on long-term commitment mutuality and sharing which is all about not knowing. It's about discovery. It's about some some taking of risk, um, and uh, these you know these are the kind of things that that make relationships successful. And they don't seem to me to be implicated in what's on offer on an online dating site. But I do understand. I do understand why a twenty five year old, or maybe maybe a thirty five year old, working in Manhattan, working in a in sixty hours a week in a in a tower block is going to 
go online because everybody else is. So, so again, we have this problem of scale that it seems, it seems that, that our collective choices as a society are, are somehow undermined by um, the, 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 the choices that face individuals and that are often taken up entirely reasonably on a, on a day-to-day basis. Now, the book ends, I think, really wonderfully by not sort of, you know, concluding that, oh, everything's terrible and, you know, isn't this awful and stuff like this, but setting out, a, a you know, a sort of a manifesto for what we might do about this, how we might um, think the world differently, both in terms of, of those, you know, individual um, questions, but also on, you know, the more macro level. So I wonder if you could sort of conclude by, by sharing with us what the manifesto is, what, you know, what the the way of challenging uh, economics might be? Well, I think you put it very nicely. It's uh, uh, just uh, some suggestions about how we may, how we may think the world differently. And, and really it's, it splits into, into uh, uh, those same two kind of lines of arguments. So on the one hand, you know, let's, let's think differently about management. Let's not try and, um, you know, go for the easy answer. That's cost benefit analysis. Let's reclaim our polity and so forth. And I have to say, I mean, we saw the excitement around the Scottish referendum and the lead up to that last year. And now the excitement about Jeremy Corbyn. And I think, you know, the, 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 the charming thing about Corbyn, whatever else one may think about him is his insistence that things do not have to be as they are. And that, that is, is such a, um, uh, seems such a radical and revolutionary claim. Of course, to, to those of us who think in sociological terms, there's nothing inevitable about, about where we are. You know, we are, we are here because of a, a complex, you know, historically intellectually contingent pattern that's got us there. If we don't like it, we have to do something about it. So there are some comments about reviving the, reviving the polity and, and um, changing the way we make um, collective decisions and so forth, which I think I'm delighted to see are working out in, in politics anyway. Um, and the other strand of it, of course, is is trying to to – overcome these profoundly alienating um, uh, positions of economic rationality at a personal level um, and pursue some kind of, of personal reenchantment. So I think the very last last part of the, the manifesto is simply something like let's let's rediscover amazement, let's rediscover awe, you know, that, that sort of childlike simplicity when confronted by whether it's, you know, um, a stunning goal from Liverpool Pool FC, or whether it's a, a, a cathedral or a, a, a mountainside, or whatever, whatever it may be, to 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 recover some of that sort of surprise and amazement and sense that there are things that simply cannot be measured, cannot be quantified, and have have value exactly because of that. In terms of um, what you've been doing after the book, um, has it been you know kind of carrying? Uh, the manifesto forward with uh, you know other academic work, or has it been you know a case of kind of switching to something completely new? What has been the kind of you know the development of the agenda following the book? Well, it's interesting that you should ask that. Um, I mean, to some extent, it's just been been doing bits and bobs because that's the way that that's the way that things have worked out um i have uh, i i'm laying the groundwork for an empirical project on um the, the smaller company stock markets in london in the um 
in the the 90s and the early noughties, which is a historical sociology of a, of a less well-known episode of financialization. So that, that could be interesting. That could be nice. In terms of, of the, the arguments in the book generally, um, I mean, these are progressed. So when I wrote the, 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 the first edition, the manifesto wasn't in it. Uh, and I was invited to put the manifesto in the paperback. And that was, that was nice for me because I'd spent a bit of time talking about the book post um, publication um, and done a few interviews and what, what have you, and had a chance to think through some of these ideas in more detail. So they appear in the manifesto. And then there's a subsequent conversation, internal conversation as we all have um, saying, well, look, you know, if these, if these ideas, if, if um, the things we do as management scholars are really really are performative if they really do shape the world in that way then what should we do about it you know what can we say to to managers as a critically inclined um performativity scholar and i'm working on on some early thoughts in in that direction how we might um how we might uh, reapproach um some aspects of of management ethics possibly again underlined by a um you know a, a, well it, it would be a, a postmodern theological perspective perhaps but so you'll have to wait and see on that one thanks for listening to new books in critical theory i've been your host dr david o'brien on this episode i was talking to philip roscoe about a richer life how economics can change the way we think 